0: This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And this episode begins Pride Month on Backstage Babble, an enlightening series of conversations with LGBT artists whose career spans 60 years of gay Broadway history. And today, my guest is the amazing Grover Dale, a Broadway dancer in the original cast of West Side Story, Lil Abner, Greenwillow, and the movie of the unsinkable Molly Brown. He also played starring roles in Sail Away, Half a Sixpence, and The Young Girls of Rochefort. In his equal renowned career as a choreographer and co-choreographer. He took on such shows as Seesaw, Billy, Molly, The Magic Show, Rachel Lily Rosenblum, and Don't You Ever Forget It, Mail, Jerome Robbins Broadway, and King of Schnorr's. He also choreographed the movies of The Way We Were and Quicksilver, as well as the legendary I Love New York commercials. And as if that weren't enough, he appeared in The Amazing Adele Out of Town, and off-Broadway he was in Too Much Johnson and and choreographed one more song, one more dance, acrobats and line and steam bath. He'll also discuss his long relationships with Anthony Perkins, Anita Morris and more. So without further ado, here he is, Grover Dale.
1: So, um I was 9 years old and I it was a hot day and I I was doing well and my dog was sitting next to me and I look across the street and the neighbor is on her way over, waving a dollar bill in the air. So I uh, immediately started pouring a cup of lemonade, and she and she said, "No, no, 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 I'm not no lemonade." I thought, "Oh, okay." So she said, "What well, this what this is about? If you take my son Jimmy." down to lillian jasper's dance studio every saturday i'll pay you a dollar and you'll get a free tap class so i didn't hesitate a free anything sounded good to me so immediately I was on, and I got the dollar, I put the lemonade back in the yard, and I was on my way to the bus stop to take Jimmy down, six-year-old Jimmy down to Lynn Jasper's dance studio. And suddenly, Sonny Cox arrives from his job at the mill, saying, what's going on, you know? And, uh, you know, and I said, oh, we're we're on our way to tap class. He says, What do you mean my son doesn't do tap doesn't do tap dance? Uh so the um the lady assured him that everything was okay. And I says, I'm gonna earn every cent of this dollar today. So I, we ran to the bus stop. I got Jimmy on the bus and we went down and I had my first tap class. So that... I was, it was an immediate connection. I mean, literally my feet, I I could do it. And it was just the shuffle ball change and shuffle off the Buffalo, you know? And um, it was, and she knew it too, she saw it. She said, you're a natural Grover. And he said, she said, you know, listen to your feet. There's music in your feet and that image has always stuck with me
0: very interesting Uh, and i would love to ask how the family situation in which you grew up affected your performing at the very beginning
1: oh okay Uh, when i was eight weeks old i lived in um i lived in harrisburg i was born in harrisburg and my dad was a chef at the local country club and my mom worked as the cashier. And I was remember I was eight weeks old, I don't remember the moment, but what I've learned is that my dad came out of the country club and he was doing his Irish jig over to his convertible, and he was going to Atlantic City with a bunch of money, and he was going to gamble. And he said, Emma, I'll be home before midnight. He never came back. He totally disappeared. So we were abandoned, and um, the news got back to McKees Court, and my grandmother, she was the organizer, and she loaded her husband into the uh, in, into the 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 Ford and got drove 300 miles to Harrisburg and took us back to McEsport and that's where my life started so there was this missing piece always there I didn't have a father and I always longed for a father well you you know it was like I, I longed for that loving caretaker, and um, and eventually, instead of what I longed for, I became what I longed for. And uh, when my son was born, I bad, so I I got to become what I wished for.
0: you. and so of course this this will be part of Pride Month so I would love to ask how your sort of journey to coming out happened from
1: the coming out
0: yeah that that. um
1: that well that happened uh when I went to Tamament Camp Tamament did you ever hear of Camp Tamament
0: oh yes I believe that's in act one is that the same
1: yeah well it's it's a place in Pennsylvania and uh uh, after I had done, um, I took classes from Frank Wagner in New York, at Carnegie Hall, uh, his jazz class, and he, he was hired to choreograph at uh, Camp Tamament. And Camp Tamament was a resource for many uh, amazing people, you know, uh, artists like Carol Burnett, uh, Jerome Robbins, um writers, and uh, so it was. You only made like thirty dollars a week, but it was a valuable job. Everybody want, in the fifties wanted to work in Camp Tamiment. So while there, uh, I I worked with Larry Kirk. You know, going to Camp Tamiment, you we arrived and they sent the cast into the restaurant to, you know, to, re- to relax and meet each other. So I remember going to to the bar with a dancer, our new name's Sharon Shore. And we, we were having a glass of wine and I looked across the bar and there was this handsome, wonderful looking guy across there named Larry Kurt. And, he waves, and I thought he was waving at somebody else, uh, but he was waving at me. And he came over, and we started. To, and eventually, he, um, what was going on was we were being given our keys and assigned cabins to stay in. And I remember going, I going to my cabin, and there were three or four guys in the cabin uh, and all of a sudden I hear this knock at the door and there's and it's Larry Kurt and one of the guys in my cabin had just exchanged cabins with him so Larry Kurt was coming into my cabin and I went oh wait a minute so that looked like uh, that was something that was my heart was beating and i thought oh yeah okay so within a couple of weeks larry and i were hitting it off in a lot of different ways and he was Quite an amazing performer. He he did a, his nightclub act on on the uh, cabaret night, and he would end his songs with a backflip in the air. And I mean, what singer would do that, you know? So there wasn't much time to have intimate time together, but we would we would jump in a car and go across the lake for 15 minutes over into the woods and we had our private time. Uh, but from there, it, by the end of that summer, Larry asked me, well, do you, do you have a place, do you have an apartment in New York? And I said, well, yeah. I share with like two or three roommates. And he said, well, you might like my apartment. So we, it was my birthday, I remember, and uh we're in the car and he says, "You have a there's a birthday present for you in the back of the car. And I I look in and it's this puppy. It was, uh, a, you know, and there she was. And I reached in and we jumped in the car. The whole drive back to New York, we're trying to find a name for her. But every time we said the word Skitter, she loved it. And so she became Skitter. Larry drove me to, the and there it was a garden apartment on West Stadia Street, and it, it, this whole homemaking part of myself came out, you know, and um, I I got all these ideas about how we could convert this small little porch into a bedroom. So we put a, uh, a window on it and uh, brought plants for the yard and there were three small rooms and at that time I didn't know that you can't knock walls down in an apartment but I did and made it into one room like a loft space and painted it and so it was like you know it was like that was my I love to build homes I, I you know and so anyway that's where Larry and I started, and we were up in the Upper West Side. And suddenly, um, West Side Story came up, and we lived in the neighborhood where there were there were gangs. So we saw them on the street, we watched them, we did our research. Uh, it was we paid attention to what we could gain from that, and then the audition started, and. Um, we both ended up in that show together. And, you know, two gay men in West Side Story, uh, l- lovers and, um, and the, the tale of West Side Story, which I know you know, uh, it was uh, about star-crossed lovers working, being introduced to the uh being directed and choreographed by Jerome Robbins was major, and within hours we saw that he was in total control of everything. Everything you didn't you you you, you had to focus. He was the he was Cheetah called him Big Daddy immediately, and the name stuck. We all called him Big Daddy, uh, so that's that's how I got started uh and it went on from there
0: yes yeah and so in West Side Story I'd be curious to ask you about there's that famous story about the cast watching Robbins as he backed off the stage and then eventually fell off the stage and is that what what?
1: what'd you think of that story did you believe it
0: well, I I was just going to ask you if that really happened, and if so, what you can remember about it.
1: Well, the the the, uh, the, the pundits all contrived the story that we all kept our mouth shut because we just let that nasty guy fall. Out. <laughs> uh, for me, that wasn't that wasn't the reality. the The, the, the reality is when when Robbins gives you notes you can't look anywhere he grabs your eyes and holds you right in front of him and he was did you do this you did that wrong and this mistake and that mistake that one. and he's he's backing away and he falls into the pit and instantly he, he lands on the in the percussion section and you hear this clatter of drums and we all ran to the edge of the stage and reaching out to help him and he turned down every hand that reached out to him. He turned it down. And he climbed up to his self and managed to get back up on stage and then proceeded to finish his note session. And at the end of it, this was in Philadelphia, the Walnut Theater. At the end of it, we were all sent to lunch, and he hobbled off alone.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so I'd love to ask about your other memories of working with him, too, um, West Side Story. And, of course, you work with him again later.
1: Um, well, yeah, that was the beginning of uh, actually a actual year working relationship for me. Um, you know, it was... Um, I mean how could you not want to work with a genius and you know um it was uh and, and i remember in in west side of story my dog played a role in in, in getting to work with Jerry robbins yeah you know, i taught my dog um in the dressing room there was tony mordanti david winters eddie roll and myself for four of us across the hallway was Cheetah Rivera and Carol Lawrence in the star Restaurant. So on matinee days, we brought Skitter to the theater, because going home to West Adia Street to walk and feed the dog. And anyway, she was adorable and the cast loved her. So while at the theater, I taught her with a couple of treats. I would open the door a little bit and I would hold the treat by the door. And I would say, "Skitter, here comes Jerry Robbins. And he would, she would run over and with both paws and slam the door to get the treat. So within 10 minutes, I was able to do it without using a treat. And I would just step away, point to the door and say, here comes Jerry Robbins. And she would run over and slam the door shut everybody loved it i mean there was something so satisfying about watching a dog slam a door in a genius's face so the, the payoff came weeks later uh and anybody's lee becker uh, came to the door and said jerry robbins is across talking to cheetah and carol he'll be here in a minute and so he, she said, get your dog ready. And I, my jaw dropped, and she saw the panic on my face. And I, she said, look, Grover, Robbins likes goofy ideas. He liked what you did on opening night with the push-ups, falling on your face. And he likes what you did, uh, uh, he likes to, he likes your. He's going to like your what you taught your dog. So, in, in within a few minutes, he comes out of the cheetah's room, and everybody in the room yells, "Here comes Jerry Robbins!" And skitter runs over and slams the door in his face. And then suddenly there's this knock on the door, and he says, "I want to meet the beast who slammed the door in my face." So with the, we open the door and Skidder jumps up in his arms and they're there kissing and him. And Jerry says, OK, Grover, who's the inventive one around here, you or your dog? And before I can answer, everybody in the room says, it's Skidder," And he said, well, OK. Grover, I wanna invite you to New York City Ballet tomorrow because I'm gonna start experimenting on a new ballet without using music. And um, and Lee Becker is standing behind him signaling me to accept it, accept it. So I do, I say, okay, I'll be there, I'll show up. He thanks me and he goes out the door and Lee Becker comes back to me, and, she, and I say, "Lee, I'm terrible at ballet. How could you do that? Will you look what, look what you made." Happen? She said, "The only thing you're terrible is about not recognizing an opportunity that's staring at you in the face." So he, she said, "You get your butt to New York City Ballet, and you deliver it." So, and she was absolutely right. Um, So that was, you know, within a week I had a contract. I stayed in West Side Story, but while the company rehearsed, I was with it in New York and helped him put it together. Thank you. So.
0: And so how did the theater lab, which you worked on with him, first begin?
1: Well, um, that happened maybe eight, Eight years later, yeah. I was making the movie half a sixpence in London. And in those days, changing lighting and changing a set took forever. So it meant that everybody had to, for two or three hours, you had to sit around and wait until they changed the, the lighting or the scenery. So Tommy Steele, he was the star of the movie, He came up with a solution. He thought, he went to the producers and he said, look, let's bring a poker table onto the set. And that'll keep us all engaged in our energies up and working towards something. So they did that. They provided him with a poker table. So for the first time I learned to play poker and it was, it, it it was amazing, you know. It did keep our energy up, and so that by the time, and two or three hours went by like that, and we were just uh, for wild cards and the jacks and the queens and the kings, and put the money on the table. And one one afternoon in the middle of a game, I had I had a two wild cards in my hand plus two jacks, and All of a sudden, the AD comes over to the table and says, Grover, you're wanted on the set. And I resented hearing that. I went, oh my god, I can't believe it. I'm making more money than I've ever made in my life. I've got co-star billing, and I I don't want to go to the set to do my job. I'd rather sit here and play poker. so i say nothing and i quietly put the cards down on the table i stand up i look Tommy still in the eye and say i'll see you guys someday and i go to the set to do my job and i never never go back to the to the poker table so what do i do on the set changes and stuff, I have two or three hours. I have a trailer outside the stage, a private trailer, all to myself. I pick up a pen and I start to write. And I just make notes. I make notes about how I feel, how I don't feel, what I think of myself, what I think of my workers, what, how how I miss, people I should be missing. And um, I put together like a six page, uh, what scenario, and I send it to a producer that I knew at CBS in New York. Within days, I hear back from him, and he's ready to produce it on a Sunday morning TV show. So that is my first my first writing is going to be produced. So I I can't believe my luck. Uh, I get occasional free trips back to New York because Paramount Pictures is, has part of India Airlines. And so I go back to New York, I get a tape recorder, I start recording interviews with people down at Washington Square, young people. And uh, the title of my project was I'll Be 23 this year. And it's about young people. And I I put it together and within a month, it's I hire seven triple threat performers and CBS pays me a $1,000 for the whole project. And I, decide I wanted a white floor, and I gave half of my salary so the floor could be white. And um, we we put it together and the, the day the day before we're going to shoot it, I think, shouldn't I what should I who should I get to watch this? So I decided to call Jerry Robinbin. And I asked him tomorrow, would you, it goes. It airs at 10 o'clock, if you can, can you watch it? It turns out he does watch it, he calls me up, he says, I've, and he gives me some wonderful feedback on what he saw and he offers me the American Theater Lab as to do it for a year, he says, you're gonna, you're going to get a lot out of this because I could tell from watching your TV show that there's something about the energy that you can give to the performers you work with and what you draw out of them. That's you're going to because what I'm going to what I'm going to do with the American Theater Lab, he was going to do a, a version of Jacqueline Kennedy's speech about her husband's assassination. And he was going to use a Japanese note theater technique that he learned with Lee Strasberg from Actors Studio. Charles, it was the most amazing educational experience I have ever, ever had. and that's why I sent you a link to Grover's number one secret to casting uh, and it's light up the room. If you get a chance, look at that. It's a very simple process. Uh, do you know what a silo is on the side of a barn? Oh, uh, on the side of a barn, there's a round structure that goes up in the air. Does that, does that ring a bell? A little bit, but anyway, the the exercise is called the silo exercise, and we did it for months. And what that is, well, look at the video; it'll it'll explain it to you. And share it if you like.
0: And for all our listeners, the link to this video can be found in the episode description. Did you find that Robbins as either a creator or a person had changed from let's say 1957 to 68 and then to 89 when you did Jerome Robbins Broadway?
1: Uh, You know, there was, he was an amazing person and he had had one thing he couldn't, it was very challenging for him to make a decision. So with any show, which is why his rehearsal periods were so long, uh, he, I remember with Jerome Williams Broadway, there was a moment when there are 61 performers, 30 people in the orchestra, 40 people backstage, stagehands, and everybody is waiting while he decides whether a curtain is going to be six inches higher or six inches lower. And we sat there for hours waiting for him to make that decision. And the producer was in the back of the theater, Manny Eisenberg, pulling out his hair, because it was that day cost him like $40,000 just for for those six, waiting those six hours. But, you know, Robbins couldn't help it. He, there was, it was just part of his nature. He was so intent on doing it things right and doing things that would work that it was like in, in West Side Story with cool we had four different versions of the cool dance to 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 memorize and there were times when we said let's go back to let's go back to version 2 no 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 let's go back to version 1 so uh, I, I, again another part of an education you know um risk taking yeah. taking the dance and being tolerant um, of someone's reluctance to make a decision, you know, his whole career was at stake with, with Jerome Robbins, Broadway, and um, and he sure let me know that, you know, um, well, that was the reality. What else,
0: what else? And did you find that when you were doing Jerome Robbins Broadway that he remembered a lot of his stuff or that you or other people had to help sort of fill it in for him?
1: Oh, very good. You know, we had people from different shows come back and rec- help the reconstruction period was six months. You know, it, it was huge. What producer would pay for that today? I don't know. It, <clears throat> I remember that we, we couldn't do an out-of-town tour because the show was so large and so expensive to operate. And I remember we had two performances in Purchase University just for him to get a look at what the show would look like and for, with an audience. And that night, the, the the house was filled. And I remember we went into like about the 11th row. We sat side by side. I had my pad out to take notes. And within 15 minutes, he turned to me and said, we both knew that this is the way the show should be done. It didn't need all the sets. It didn't need the wigs. All it needed was the dancers, lighting, and something cinematic to show the transitions, how they might work. And by the end of the show, we got out of art. We went back to the hotel. We spent into the night, uh, well, I I would draw. I, I was a drawer, and so I would sketch. And we came up with just astonishing ways of doing the show and the next morning we got manny Eisenberg to meet us in the hotel room and manny looked at what we had he said i love it but you can't do it he said i've already spent eight hundred thousand dollars for the scenery and the costumes and the lighting so you've got and you always and he turns to and he says you have signed contracts with Thirty of your collaborators on these different shows, and you promised them that the episodes would be exactly as they were staged in the original. This new version, you know, it's, if 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 the if those ideas had been implemented. The show probably would have lasted 10 or 15 years because it would have been it would it would have been affordable. Yeah. You know, all the all the production costs would have been 20% of what they were. And the show could have been toured with two trucks instead of the 12 that it took. So, you know, it's but that's that's what life is like. You know, yeah, you roll with the punches,
0: and so I'd love to ask about the casting process for Jerome Robbins Broadband. How you sure. found the performers who would be versatile enough to take on all those roles?
1: Well, you know, <clears throat> another good question that, um, <clears throat> is there any particular cast member you want to ask about?
0: Oh, well, maybe Jason Alexander. Uh,
1: he was phenomenal. You know, he, Jason could do anything. He had humor. He had depth. He had, uh, he could sing his ass off. <laughs> uh, you know, um, he was just an, an amazing asset. Um, anybody else?
0: Yeah, and maybe Faith Prince or Debbie Granite.
1: Rince, My goodness. And, and, uh, uh, Debbie Shapiro. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, one of one of my particular choice was that they gotta have a gimmick number with, uh, Faith and Debbie and Suzanne Fletcher. Uh, I remember being in the office with Jerry and Jerry said, you know, There is a 16-bar dance break in the number. Why don't you stage it? And I went, oh, wait a minute. Here, I'm I'm with a genius choreographer, and he's asking me to stage a dance break. Something is. so i said well jerry let me go put something together and i'll bring it back in let me show it to you okay he said okay fine so i go to into another studio and an hour later i come back and wait until he's ready i said okay let me show you what i got so i do to do dip to the wow bump and and he said oh it's all good except don't do that bump at the end it's really vulgar uh, and i said okay i'll take that out so i thought okay um I've, I've got basically acceptance for it i'll go stage it so i got the three girls working through it and i look over at the office and the door to the office is open about this far and i see an eyeball yeah. And I know it's Jerry watching. So I yell, Jerry, come on in. Come, come see what we got. So he comes in and he sits and he watches the 16 bars. He said, you know, I think at the end, what you could add into it is boom, boom, bump, boom. I couldn't believe it's the thing that he asked me to take out. He's, he's putting back in. So again, That's a clue to he wanted that in the number, but he wanted credit for. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, it's it was just amazing work experience with him.
0: And he he had a bit of a reputation for being mean sometimes and angry. And did you see a lot of that or?
1: Well, you know, a lot of people accuse him of that. And um, but I kind of, in a way, his own father was not a very nice man to him. So he grew up, they had a delicatessen, and his father made him sleep on the counter. He didn't even get to sleep on a bed. So... You know, I I understand why he had reactions that were unpleasant. Yeah. You know, because it's, it's the way he was, it's what he was comfortable with. It's what he grew up with. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sure there were people in his life that were loving and wonderful to him, but uh, it did not sound like his. Yeah. Sounds like we both had dad problems. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: And so, going back to the beginning of your career, because of course we've skipped over so much, how did the amazing Adele happen on the road?
1: Uh, well, that, the choreographer was Herbert Ross. And when I first went to New York, <clears throat> I worked, the, I did a year. Of the Milton Berle shows and the Martha Ray shows, so and we would do three Milton Berle and then one Martha Ray show. So I worked for Ross for over a year, and then <clears throat> when we were in California doing the first color TV broadcast, was it? I, it was either CBS or NBC. Um, there was an episode with um, Esther Williams and a. In a in a swimming pool and again that was a near disaster for me because they asked for volunteers to swim with esther williams and my hand just who who could not volunteer to swim with, with a movie legend right so my hand goes up the only problem was i didn't know how to swim and so i remember checking the pool and I would. I'd be safe because it was only like five feet deep and only eight feet wide. So I thought, well, I I can survive this. And, uh, um, uh, anyway, I did survive it, and Herbert then did ask me if I wanted to do a Broadway show with him, and it was amazing Adele. Now, um, *The Amazing Adele*. Now, *The Amazing Adele*, I. Talk about volunteering. Do you know what a gypsy run-through is?
0: Oh yes, that's when you perform it for the Broadway.
1: Right for the Broadway community, and you you uh, it happens before you go out of town. And it was my first time experience with a gypsy run-through, and uh, we did it at the Second Avenue Theater, and it was it was. Spectacular reaction. What I didn't know is all Gypsy run-throughs have spectacular reactions. <laughs> the, the, so, uh, the after after the run-through, the producer uh, Morton Gottlieb. Uh, gets the cast together backstage. And he says, we've got one share of the show left and we can put 10 names on that one share. So a hundred dollars will get your name on the contract. Does anybody want to sign on to it? (laughs) My hand went up and I invested all, every cent of the $200 I had. And when we went out of town, we opened in Philadelphia it was a disaster and i said okay there goes my 200 um but on the train when the show closed out of town uh morton gottlieb got on the train and he gave me back my 200 dollars. he gave me 10 20 bills he said he didn't want me to he did, he wanted me to think of him as a good man and i i, I always did that was really Quite wonderful of them to do that.
0: And then after this, I believe you went on to your first Broadway show, which was Lil Abner.
1: And yeah.
0: so, what did you sort of learn from making your debut on Broadway?
1: Yeah, yeah you know, um, again in those days, it was pretty raucous backstage. I don't, it's it's different. It's, it's a little different. I mean, um, I, re- I remember walking home, and when you walked up. When you left the theater, you had to be careful crossing the stage because there were gobs of toilet paper thrown down by the dancers at you. So, uh, you know, one of the um, I remember when I got West Side Story. Tony Mordenti and I were given a party, and Michael Kidd sent a couple of bottles of champagne and Mark Rowe, who was the the dance captain and Dee Dee Wood, they got us together in the dressing room and they grabbed Tony and I and they stripped us down and held us down on the floor and they shaved our crotches because they didn't want us to leave without having something to remember them by and during the hot summer when you're rehearsing in a dance belt if you don't ever shave your crotch because it is the itchiest you're ever going Uh to feel so that's what they but you know that's what gypsies were like back in those days
0: yeah yeah (laughs) and so back to Lil Abner you were working with Michael Kidd another great director choreographer yeah yeah
1: Um, yeah you know um again that they were all such individuals um Michael, michael created the most challenging choreography ever like i don't the show there was rag off the bush number in the first act and it was eight minutes long and I weighed 145 pounds and I was carrying a woman on my shoulder who weighed 148 pounds, you know. And, you know, but that's, he liked big women and he liked skinny guys. So, you know, and I remember at the end of that number, the end of the you bent over this way, and you had to stay there until the applause stopped. And after you do an eight-minute number and you're bent over, leaning over, you are gasping for breath. And I remember being, and I remember hearing Tony Warden say, fuck you, Michael Kidd, you know, so But he he wouldn't change that that button. He made us do it. Uh, But it, you know, you for all those challenges, for every one of them, it's it just contributes to the strength that you develop. So you know, it was an asset.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so, of course, you worked with so many of the great. Broadway directors and choreographers of that era, and was there one that you thought their style especially suited you and your body and the way you danced? Uh,
1: you know, Joe Layton—he he choreographed *Green Willow* and *Sailway*, uh, and his body—he had longer legs than anybody, and so the proportions of his body were very different than mine. But somehow. He had a goofiness that I responded to, and my body adapted to really quickly. So I remember the a dance that he choreographed in in one day, and it came out of both of us because we both trusted each other, and there was the the. I didn't know where the movement came from, but it just suddenly was there. We had it. Um, and it was, it was unique. Wait a minute, I got my dog just grabbed the leash and he's chewing. Away. Wait a minute, I'll be right back. The joy of being a dancer is is something, it, it's a rare thing. And I mean, I work with Anna, Anna White. She choreographed by sitting in a chair. And she said, she would show up in Levi's and a mink coat. And she would sit in a chair and she said, Oh, I like what he's doing. Let's say take that. Come bring, come on up. Sit up. Oh, how about that over there? You know, and she choreographed by using other people's contributions. Uh, Robbins never did that. You know, when Robbins choreographed, most choreographers look in the mirror when they choreograph and they design what they're watching and what they're seeing in the mirror. He didn't, he he stood, he closed his eyes and he listened to the music and how his body reacted to the music That's what would come out of it. So as his assistant, I stood behind him and I tuned into what I sensed his body was going to do. Every choreographer is different. Yeah. And um, you never know what you're, when you walk in the door, you never know what you're going to get into. But it's all a wonderful adventure.
0: Oh, yeah oh and so i'd love to talk about two with lil abner uh charlotte ray and stubby Kay, who were two great character actors yeah
1: and yeah well i did two shows with uh charlotte ray she was originally hard for half a sixpence you know you you I, again you you don't know what you're going to get into when you walk in the door if would I do anything different? Maybe. Yeah, I, I, maybe I would listen more because, you know, character actors have so much to contribute. You From know? Little Avenue to West Side Story to Green Willow uh, to Sailway to Half a Sixpence to King of Schnorrs. I mean, they just, they just go on and on. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah, I'd love to go on to Green Willow, which you were just mentioning, and is that where you met Anthony Perkins for the first time?
1: Oh, yes, indeed. Oh. Yeah.
0: And was there an immediate sort of connection between?
1: Well, he was—he—he uh, uh, he was always a hard problem of mine, you know. Um, a movie star, friendly persuasion that's the the, and when i found out they were considering me to be his understudy i was even more amazed Uh, i remember on uh when we are out of town again joe layton developed this second act number for me and it just kept getting better and better and the audience reacted stronger and stronger by the time we got back to New York, it was on the cusp of absolutely stopping the show. And on the first preview at in, in New York, it stopped the show. And Tony Perkins had an entrance right at the end of it. And he, well, right on cue, he marches right out. And he's in, he's in that awkward position of, of what the audience just kept applauding, and he suddenly ended up having to back off and go off <laughs> stage and re enter again. And so the next day, I, we, I thought, well, they're going to have something that's going to have to be changed there, you know. So I get to the theater early and I walk backstage, and before crossing the stage, I hear an argument going on. And that argument is between Joe Layton and Frank Lesser. And I hear Frank Lesser saying, well, the real solution, Joe, is if we cut Andrew's dance, just cut it. And Joe explodes. He says, well, if you cut the dance, I'm taking my name off the show. So I couldn't believe what I what I was hearing. So I backed off go outside on the sidewalk, and I walk face-to-face with, into Tony Perkins, and he, he sees the panic on my face, and it spills out, I say exactly what I just heard. And he says, look, Grover, you don't have to worry. He says, you deserve the showstopper, and it's an easy fix. Joe Layton will fix it. He'll change my entrance, so not to worry and he says what you need right now is a hug and so i i said look i'm reluctant i said look hugs get me in trouble and he, he says, well yes they do especially with horny guys like me and so i do we do the hug and he said anytime you want another hug just come and see me so what an invitation right? So that was that was the beginning yeah. of that relationship.
0: And I believe you maintained that relationship for about 13 more years, if not more.
1: Oh, it was, well, six more years was.
0: Oh, six more.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And how did that, again, sort of intersect with your professional career?
1: You know, it was, again, more lessons, you know movie actors, gay movie actors have a, a really rough time, you know, especially in those days. You you couldn't go to a restaurant and have a candlelit dinner together with, with, unless you took a, a, a female friend with you. Uh, you had, you tended to wear sunglasses and hats on the street. You couldn't hold hands on the street. Um, it was... It was not a good time, you know. Um, in many ways, we've come a long way. Um, Tony had a, a great house up in, uh, in in Wellfleet on Cape Cod, so we would we would do getaways. That's how we we first spent time together, uh, and uh, that was wonderful. And uh, he lived on 55th Street, I lived on 56th Street, but I preferred it when he came to my house. <laughs> uh, but so. I remember when I was making movies, uh, he bought a brownstone down in Chelsea. And um, so I wasn't around uh, to, for the construction of it. So when I got home, uh, I moved in with him down on West Twenty West Twenty First Street, Four Six Seven, and um, we. It was just a wonderful neighborhood to live in in Chelsea. And when when I met Anita, uh, I was I was working for the Stockbridge uh, Theater Festival, and she submitted her picture and resume, and. Uh, I remember the producer lynn austin said you you have to come to the office and go through all these pictures you got a stack it's a huge stack so i i show up and go start i have a yes pile a no pile and a maybe pot so i'm going through the pictures looking at the photograph looking at the resume well okay uh, uh, let's see that person so put it in the yes pile. and i'm going through and i come across this picture of a woman wearing a white plastic mask on her face and then a back end. I thought, who would submit a picture like that? How ridiculous is that? And it's my hand is going into the no pile and halfway it stops. And I pull the picture back and I think, wait a minute. I gotta meet somebody who would do a thing like this, okay? So I put it in the maybe. And a week later, in walks Anita Morris, this gorgeous red-haired beauty. I couldn't believe it. And I hold her picture. I said, Is this really you? And she comes in and she says, It's the only picture she had. So you said, you know, and during the, that interview, I we we hit it off talking for at least a half an hour. And I just I was stunned by her. And um, it turns out that I hire her for, uh, oh no, oh no something, another show, Jesus Christ Superstar comes oh. up. I, I'm hired as the choreographer. So I let her know. I say, look, next week I'm auditioning dancers for Jesus Christ Superstar. Maybe you want to come in and audition for that. She does, she nails it. The, the dance audition, and I think, oh, God, now she's got to sing. What to, what if she doesn't have a voice? And she had, it turns out she had a glorious voice, as, as you know. And so she's signed for Jesus Christ Superstar. And six months later, the submission she made with the photograph, that job comes up. She shows up. She wants it. I said, "You're in a Broadway smash hit. You, you, Why would you want to do that to come to do experimental work with me?" She says, "I want to work with you." And it turns out she does. She comes to Stockbridge. She does that job, and we spend intimate time together. And it, I explain it to Tony. And he says, wonderful. And I said, do you mind if I take her up to my house in the country this weekend? He says, no, by all means, go ahead. So I do. And on the way back, we stop at Tony's house. And he's out on the sidewalk being photographed by Barry Berenson, who he he eventually marries, So the four of us move in together in the Chelsea Browns tunnel. Anita and I have the duplex down below. He, he and Barry up. So our friends think we have gone off. We we have, we have, we have, we've defied everybody and we're now, the four of us are living together. So. That's what life was like on West 21st Street. And within a year, Anita and I bought a brownstone over on 20th Street, but we remained friends with Tony and Barry uh, with with Anita. Um, I was married to her for 20 years. No, no deviance away from that marriage. Yeah. No. and so and for tony but uh it, I, for his marriage but we we remain close friends yeah
0: yeah and so i'd love to go on to of course you've done so many great things and we won't be able to talk about all of them but i'm sure people would want to hear about sail away and working with no coward on that
1: so, well yeah i mean how about that you know, when you I was doing West Side Story in, in Israel and the end of the tour, we played Paris for six weeks. And I remember being backstage and the stage manager announces, there's a man named Noel Coward down here with Marlena Dietrich and they want to come up to see Grover Gale. And everybody starts laughing. You know, no one believes it. And within minutes, there's a knock at the dressing room door, and it's Noel Coward and Marlene Dietrich. And I go to the door. I'm in my dance belt, and Noel Coward says, "Young man, uh, if you're available, I'd like to. I'd like to talk with you. Come and have a, a drink with Marlene and I. And I want to." talk to you because Joe Layton has recommended you to play the juvenile lead in my new musical. So that's where that started. And, you know, it just like it was one amazing moment after the next, I remember going to that club, and there's a piano and him sitting there playing the piano, and he's singing the song. And it's the song was, When you want me, call me, call me there, and it was so, so moving. And I immediately imagine, imagine Tony Perkins singing that song to me, you know. And uh, the within months, I was I was back in New York. running to the Broadhurst Theater and rehearsing with Noel Coward and Joe Layton and and Elaine Stritch.
0: Yes, yes, and of course I would be remiss not to ask you about Elaine Stritch and your friendship with her. Yeah,
1: I I can't believe I'm telling you all this stuff. Uh, Thank you.
0: uh,
1: Elaine and I, I mean, she was a, you know what she was. so we both did New York, and then we both went to London and did the, the London. And in L- london, I was I was alone. and and Elaine and I rented a Chelsea duplex, and we lived there together. And we started our relationship and with, for some crazy reason, we we got a marriage license. And um, the day I left Sailway and went back to New York, she and I were sitting at the t- kitchen table and on the table was the marriage license. Without a word, she reached for the marriage license and tore it up and dropped it on the floor. And I got up and I kissed her on the head, and I went out and got in a taxi and I flew back to New York. Yeah. You know, so without a word, that relationship was over. Um, But, yeah. Wow. You're reminding me of all the stuff I did.
0: Oh, well. I love hearing about it, so thank you for for telling me.
1: You're very welcome. And
0: and so you did this and of course you did have Sixpence, which was a big success also, and then after that, did you sort of make a conscious choice to only do directing, or was that just how it happened, and choreographing?
1: You know, and somewhere in there was a young girl who was four, and you know, it Jungels of Rochefort is a classic. And the reason I got that film was that someone dropped out and they needed an immediate replacement. And when my agent called me, the first question out of his mouth was, Grover, do you have a passport? And I said, well, yeah, it's back in New York. I mean, I'm up on Cape Cod now. He says, well, get your ass back to New York, get that passport, get on Air India Flight 6. You're flying to London and you're going to co-star in a movie with Gene Kelly, George Chakiris, Catherine Deneuve, Françoise D'Orlet. I couldn't believe it. And if it wasn't, if I didn't have that passport, I wouldn't have had that show. You know, so it's, you just never know what it is it's going to secure you what you want yeah yeah
0: and what did you find different about performing for the screen and for what for the screen as opposed to the stage
1: well you don't have to talk as loud <laughs> uh, you know it it um and i had no gift for accents i did i and there i did an english movie playing an englishman and a french movie playing a french so uh, who know who know, and Charles, I would just be in the middle of a scene, and I would just watch the other actor. When their mouth stopped, I knew it was my turn to start speaking. You know, it. it thank God I could dance. I knew I I knew that my chops as a dancer would keep me there, uh, but. God, God, thank you, God! It did.
0: Yeah, yeah. And what was it like to be on a set with Gene Kelly and to be working with him? Yeah, how oh about was- dancing
1: <laughs> with Gene Kelly? You know, can you imagine? Uh, and the first day he shows up on the set, uh, George and I are doing a, a number out on the square, and they're, you know, and we see Gene Kelly over by talking to the director, and, and uh, it turns out he's talking about George and I. He's telling Jacques to me that he wants to do a number with George and I, one of those going down the alley numbers. Couldn't believe it. And as it turns out, we got to rehearse it for four hours with him. So I did get to dance with Gene Kelly, but the number was never shot. It was never recorded because they, Jacques, warned him, but he still wanted to rehearse it anyway. That the three characters could not meet, or the plot would have been messed up. So oh. uh, ultimately, it wasn't in the movie. But I did get to jive alongside Gene Kelly. Oh
0: yeah, and so your your next show after this was Half Sixpence that we. Didn't talk about yet, and understudying the lead in this, and also in Green Willow. Did you get to go on a lot for those? No, two?
1: I never did. Oh, no. But I got to rehearse it.
0: Yes, yeah. And what was your sort of relationship like with Tommy Steele, who was the with lead? Tommy
1: Steele. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, He's, uh, he's a spirited. Buddy, you know, uh, he just would climb the scenery. It was like he was always up to no good. (laughs) We had a lot of fun together. A lot of fun.
0: And what do you think it was that made that that show so successful?
1: You know, um, I have a feeling it was his spirit when he came on stage. He was always up to no good. He always wanted to break us up. So he was always looking for a way to change stuff. So we had to be extra alert to watch out for his games. And somehow the audience, they didn't know that that's what he was doing, but they saw our energies that we were having fun they saw that we were there was playfulness going on that that, between these guys these four guys so i think that had a lot to do with it yeah interesting the the your basic your qualities you bring on a stage impact the audience
0: yeah Hmm. that is it is interesting and so Of course, your first Broadway choreography job was after this, which was Billy. And so how did that sort of come into your life at first? To be?
1: Uh, Well, you know, when I met with the director, Arthur Seidelman, I had had that experience with the American Theater Lab, with with Jerry, and uh, the thoroughness. And when I met with Arthur Seidelman, I shocked him because before I met with him, I went down to the seaport, South Street seaport on one of those sailing vessels, and I spent two days on that vessel, just walking it and climbing the ropes and seeing so that the ideas that I gave him were based on the practicality of what sailors had to go through to survive on that ship. So my homework wasn't just about reading about Billy Budd or examining what's behind the characters. It was getting on a ship, walking on the real wood, and climbing on the real ropes. Uh, I think that really impacted him. And he said, you're the right choreographer. There was, it, I was, it was so pleasure to be the one he really wanted okay you'd frozen again oh, oh no you weren't frozen. you you're just still
0: <laughs> oh and so as a choreographer how were you sort of influenced by the choreographers who you worked with in your dancing
1: yeah as i told you before they they all work differently you know and uh so and and going through the whole American Theater Lab experience, and uh, it, it it was digging deep. I I always always dug inside myself, you know, and doing even doing Copacabana, Barry Manilow's piece on television, uh, those the swords or the sword dance with the guys and even the the the, the women with the baskets of bananas on their head yeah, it it uh, part of my pleasure part of my choreography was actually being on the floor to during the shooting and holding the cameraman and guiding him through the choreography so that i i he he didn't know where to go he just trusted me to shove his body and his camera where we're supposed to go i i i don't ever remember seeing anybody else do that but it made a difference you know
0: yeah Yeah. and so going back to billy when that did end up closing after only one performance was yeah, that, that one uh, yeah and was that something that you were surprised by or what do you well, think of?
1: not really because the there w- was very little money available i knew that even even while we were rehearsing uh, and but it it got me started, you know, and it, and it earned me acknowledgement from the New York Times critic uh, that I really appreciated, uh, and it was a, it was a great beginning. Great beginning.
0: And it also earned you a Tony nomination, which leads me to ask you about the Tonys and what your experiences have been like with the Tonys throughout.
1: Well, you know, again, the, those are in the business, those acknowledgements, those recognitions count, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and it was, I felt honored and uh, to be acknowledged that way uh, a number of times with the magic show and, and with Seesaw. Uh, um, so nice. Yeah. You had no complaints from me.
0: (laughs) And, of course, Seesaw was, as you were saying, another big thing that you did. And how did that sort of start with Michael Bennett?
1: Well, it was not... uh, Michael Bennett came in uh, while we were out of town. The the original was another original director. And when the show opened out of town, there were problems uh, with the leading Woman, uh, Larry Kasha came to me, who was the producer, and said, "Could you get Jerry Robbins to come and take a look?" And I got him to come and take a look, and he was wonderful. And um, he said, "This isn't the right show for him to do," but he said, "Hang in there." You said your work is fine. You're going to do okay, but just be ready to just be ready to go with where another director is going to take you. And Michael Bennett took us in another direction. You know, I'm going to lose my my Mac, it's going to go to sleep soon. Oh. What do you, uh, how do you want to wrap this up?
0: Oh, I don't, well, I'd love to talk about, talk about Rachel about- Lily Rosenblum.
1: Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> uh, who, was, who was the producer of that? Uh, an Englishman, uh, you know, uh, Anita was in the show, and uh, there was another choreographer involved. And the producer just said, look, I want want you to, how long will it take you to do two Showstoppers? I said, I'll need 12 hours for Showstoppers. And uh, so he said, I'll give you 10 hours and just see what you can do for me. So I took three of the numbers from the show, combined them into one. And it became a showstopper. It was Anita's number. And uh, it, you know, and it never, it would never opened officially, but it was, it was just, uh, it was the buzz around town, you know. People showed up, they wanted to see it. And uh, uh, it was, It was quite. It was quite something. Paul Jafapa and Ellen Green, amazing.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And then, if you do have time, just to talk a little bit about the magic show, because of course that's one of the big.
1: Oh, the magic show, right? Uh, You know, I I remember I had doctored four shows in one year. Oh. And Anita and I were living together. we were married then too. Uh, And uh, I get a call from Edgar Lansbury, the producer, and he said, look, would you be willing to go up to Toronto to look at a magician named Doug Henning and in a show called Spellbound and see if his 12 illusions could be made into a musical? And I thought, wait a minute, are you saying make 12 illusions into a musical? And, Behind me, Anita is in the kitchen, and she takes off the bulletin board, my last royalty check for $78, and she starts dancing around in front of me with it. And I oh, I got it. I can't afford to say no to any opportunity. (laughs) So I said, yes, Mr. Lansbury, I will go to Toronto to see if 12 musicals can be made into a musical. So Anita and I fly up. We look a spellbound. Doug Henning is dressed in a rock star kind of outfit with a top hat and rhinestone platform shoes, skinny legs. And he's not at best he's sort of awkward and uncomfortable. And but his twelve illusions are amazing. So we Anita and I go backstage to meet him. And he's very comfortable in a pair of Levi's and a t-shirt and long hair. So I I call Edgar back uh, in New York and I said, look, he this is he's wonderful with a in jeans and a t-shirt. And so he said, we, I want you to meet Stephen Schwartz. So we got together with Stephen Schwartz. I described what could happen if we took him out of that rock star kind of mode and just let him be a kid and put another older magician who's trying to steal his illusions away from him. And the, Stephen Schwartz loves the idea. And he says, do you know any writers who could write it? I said, I know, too. And I'm gonna, and Edgar Lansmerry hands me the phone. He said, call them right now. I pick up the phone, I call Dan Greenberg. No answer and no answering machine. So we hang up. That didn't work. My next call is to Bob Randall who picks up the phone. And I describe what we're talking about. And Bob Randall says, that sounds great. I could be there in 20 minutes. In 20 minutes, Bob Randall shows up, and within an hour, we've sketched out this whole plot, and it's a done deal. And it be Magic Show became the eighth longest-running musical in Broadway history. Well, at that time, it was, uh, and that's that's what happened from Bob Randall being available on that phone call.
0: And how much how about that oh yes and how much input did doug henning have creatively and how much did he want to have
1: well, the, he was the owner of the illusions that yeah so if, if if a if an illusion becomes something that the core element of a particular scene you know he's participating you know? doug henning within within weeks surrounding him with out open players, he adopted their energies, and he was wonderful, Michelle. absolutely wonderful.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then we can quickly talk about the "I Love New York" commercials that you did. Which
1: oh, nice, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, again, being ready to go with anything that comes up is really important and i again that those commercials reinforced it at 11:30 30 at night we would be taken to location with the cast of a broadway show and the director and i would walk through the location and he would say the area he would, lo- what he would see, what he would like to do. And I would say, oh, okay, I could do that. And within, I would put together 10 second segments, just based immediately from walk that stroll with the director, call the cast out and start staging it. No pre-production whatsoever. Just do
0: And then just one last question, which is a general one, which is what advice would you give to somebody starting out after the great career that you've had?
1: The only show that matters is the one you're doing right now. And that goes for you too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for doing this. It's been an honor to talk to you. And listeners, thank you for tuning in and remember to come back next week when I'm joined by legendary set designer Peter Harvey. His design credits include the original off-Broadway productions of The Boys in the Band, Dames at Sea, and The Mad Show. He also worked off-Broadway on original plays by Thornton Wilder, Joyce Carol Oates, Terrence McNally, John Guare, Sam Shepard, Shelley Winters, and more. He started his career on Broadway as a set assistant on Redhead, Fiora, once upon a mattress and keen and went on to design the costumes and sets for baby want a kiss johnny johnson sextet the black picture show the effect of gamma rays on man in the moon marigolds park and served as scenic supervisor for the rocky horror picture show he also worked for the new york city ballet most famously on the original production of george balanchine's jewels so make sure to tune back in for that episode thanks for listening